All right, Father God, we thank you so much for just how you speak to us through your word and uh, and this this topic of um, unconditional election. I thank you for for its truth. I thank you that uh, um, even though our hearts are resistant to this doctrine, that you still gently teach us. So I pray that you do that right now. And in this class, uh, um, when questions come up, they'd be answered biblically and truthfully, God. So um, for those that are on their way, I pray for their safety. We look forward to being with them in a few minutes, Kyrie. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So let me, um, I don't have this passage in the sheet, but uh, I want to read this to you guys first. And this is from Isaiah 40, if you want to follow along on your phones or Bibles. But um, Isaiah 40, starting with verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure, and weigh the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And I'm going to read the last three chapters right here. I'm sorry, I'm just going to skip down to uh, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Uh, this passage in Isaiah 40, you know, it doesn't talk about unconditional election directly, but it talks about the majesty of God. It talks about the rights of God. It talks about um, the power that God has as a, as a sovereign ruler over the universe. And this is ultimately what unconditional election is about. So as we look go through the, uh, the sheet today, we have actually a ton of information that we're definitely not going to get all the way through. But we're just going to skim through it. I want us to get a uh, uh, somewhat of a grasp on this doctrine of unconditional election. So before we do that, let me um, go through uh, Tulip. So were you guys all here for Harry's lesson last week? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Did you guys... I, I was not here for, for most of it, but th- did it raise some questions and cause you guys to think? Yeah. Okay. Did you like agree or was there some resistance, maybe not from you, but from other people? Was it pretty uh, well accepted? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it was. Sorry. No, you, you go first. I think it was like like everyone accepted it. I think um, I think everyone was kind of promised that towards the end of it, it mm-hmm. will all make sense. Oh, uh, all right. Okay, cool. So yeah, we're, there's definitely like a lot more. They, this is the type of doctrine that raises a lot more questions. So, um, going through the five points of Calvinism, we're on unconditional election now. And let me just read this quote from you, uh, from J.C. Ryle. He says this of God's sovereignty. 
Of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Why is it that um, that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is so offensive? Um, a big part of it comes down to this election, meaning that God is in control of our lives, um, and meaning that God is in control ultimately of our election, of our salvation. And that, you know, on the surface it sounds like okay, but then when you get to it, some people have a deep, deep problem with the fact that did God really choose me? And all these questions come up, so hopefully we can address some of those questions today. Um, so uh, let me go through some some terms for you right here, and this will hopefully set some of the groundwork that we're, uh, the, uh, for the stuff that we're talking about. So unconditional uh, means no conditions attached, foreseen or otherwise. So in World War II, at the end of the war, there was an unconditional surrender signed. That meant that there were no... Uh, there's nothing to be attached to the to the uh, surrender, that, meaning that the loser did not uh, they, they did not want anything. They just said like we surrender. There's nothing else that needs to be done. There's nothing that we expect. There's nothing that that um, you should expect from us other than our unconditional surrender. So there's nothing attached to it. No strings attached. But that didn't last long. Uh, what what do you mean? I mean, wasn't Germany the one that surrendered? Uh, I think Japan surrendered as well. No, but World War One. World War One. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm talking about World War Two. Oh. We're talking about unconditional election right now, so please do not interrupt with your history lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Aikman. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, election, and this is uh, an act of God before creation. That's really important. Before creation, in which He chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. Alright, any questions there? Are you guys, uh, have you guys heard some of this stuff before? Okay. Predestination, to predetermine or decide beforehand. Um, reprobation, and this is actually, I'm just going to throw this term in there. We're actually not going to talk about it too much. We're not going to, because of time, I want to focus on other stuff. But if we were to have a election 201 class, this is what we would talk about, reprobation, which is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some person's in sorrow, deciding not to save them and punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest manifest his justice. And last, grace, which is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Alrighty, so um, we've got uh, this definition from the Westminster Confession of Faith and this talks about the about unconditional election. And um, Michael, can I have you read uh, 3.5 of the Westminster Confession? Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundation of the world is laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and the pleasure of his will, have chosen Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in a creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. All right, thanks. Um, so this is talking about how God choosing, it says there's his secret counsel and the pleasure of his will. Um, for, for reasons that are oftentimes unknown to us, God chooses people. It's ultimately not for our good, but it's ultimately that God would be praised. So um, in this class, as we learn more about election, it should not be to... Um, cause us to, you know, be prideful about what we know. It should not cause us to be resentful of these truths, but ultimately it should cause us to <coughs> worship God. This is everything that we do as a church. 
the ultimate purpose is that God would be glorified. Um, and uh, uh, Chow, can I have you read 3.6? As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, <coughs> foreordained all the all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved. Alright, look at this. So it's talking about the elect. And look at how it talks about how God is the one that does everything here. So it says that they were elected, um, they were redeemed, they're justified, they're adopted, they're sanctified, kept by his power through faith and salvation. And this is ultimately um, what unconditional election is. It means that God was the one that started the work in us before there was any thought of us by anyone else before, before your great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother met in a parking lot and they hit it off, you know. <laughs> All that happened before, uh, God chose us, elected us before that happened. And not only that, but um, as we came into being, he was the one that um, that justified us. He's the one that adopted us. Right now we're being sanctified. And this is all the work of God. All right? So um, I know that the words in the Westminster Confession, they're not the easiest to digest. So let's go into some text. And um, I would like to hit each point very briefly. I know there's a lot. Um, but uh, I'm going to have um, you guys read a few verses. So the first one is this, that God has chosen people. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that God has chosen people to be uh, to be saved, or to, to be his people. So, Ashley, can you read um, Psalm 33, the second verse, right there? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. All right, thanks. So we see that in the Old Testament. We also see that in Deuteronomy, which I have on the sheet. Aikman, can I have you read Matthew twenty two fourteen? Um, all right. It's bottom one or top one? Uh, I'm sorry, third right there. Oh, for many are called, but few are chosen. All right, thanks. And Tommy, can I have you read uh, Matthew twenty? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have two Matthew twenty two yes, fourteen. Yes, <laughs> My bad. Can you read the next one, Tommy? Okay. <clears throat> and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And he will and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Alright, so we hear we hear uh, Jesus talking here and he's talking about the elect. Jesus is very uh, when it, there, there are multiple points in all the Gospels when Jesus refers to his elect, when he refers to those that the Father has given him, when he refers to those that are chosen. So we see this here. There's just, um, it's the elect that God does something for the sake of. So um, we'll see that continued on in the um, in uh, the epistles. Mimi, can I have you read from First Peter seven nine? And um, listen to the two groups of people, or look for the two groups of people that are referred to here in First Peter two. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. All right, stop there. Can you read that last last line again? 
Uh, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. All right, cool. And go on. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right. What do you guys see here? What do you? Who are the two groups of people that you see? Who believe and who do not believe. Okay. So. Okay. And what is um, what does this text say about those who don't believe? There's like a descriptor applied to them or a phrase. Uh, the stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Okay. Or and then uh, and the next line, uh, or actually the down a couple lines at the end of that at the end of that sentence, it says that as they were destined to do. So these people that don't believe, they were destined to not believe the word, right? So, destined. Okay, but what about the <coughs> sons of people? Who's the other group? The chosen race. All right. The chosen. All right, that's really interesting, right? Those who don't believe, they were destined in the beginning to not believe. But then, uh, here in this text, it says that though those who do believe, they were chosen. They're a chosen race. So they're picked out, and there's a specific purpose for them. Okay. And then we have a whole bunch of other texts. Actually, all these points that they have, they actually um, have a, a lot of proof text, so I don't have all of them here. But uh, So I can give you more, more references if you would like later on. All right, so... Um, uh, one of our, our next page, our point is uh, election is not based on forcing choices. So do you guys remember the two groups of people? So we here at IGC, we're generally Calvinists, right? I don't think everyone at IGC is a Calvinist. That's fine. Um, but we generally are. Um, what's the other group of people that are not Calvinists? Arminians. All right. So, we as Calvinists, or what Calvinists believe, is that God chose people based on, not based on anything that they do. So, but um, this concept of predestination, this concept of election and being chosen, everyone, I, I would say 99% of the people who read the Bible, they'll agree that, you know, God does choose, God does elect people. But the difference comes in how God chooses people. So the Arminians will say that God chose people based on what he knows that they will choose. So this is based on <coughs> for knowledge. So what they say is that, yes, God chooses people, God elects people, but he chooses them because he knows in the future that they will accept Christ. And that's what election is based on. But what we teach here is that God is the one that did the choosing, not based on what, on our, uh, choices that he foresaw in the future. So, um, looking at here in Mark 13, 20, our first uh, number one, is God, God did the choosing for the sake of the elect whom he chose. And God's choice was made before the foundation of the world. That's point number two. So can I have... Um, just, Justin Chu, can I have you read Ephesians 1, 4 through 5? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All right, thanks. So this text tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. Um, we, we're going back in time. Justin Chu, that we're, we're going to read, um, can you read uh, Revelation 13, 8? I'm sorry? Wong. Oh, Justin Wong. Jazzy, Jazzy. <laughs> Um, and this is talking about the book of life that was in the book of Revelation, except all this stuff was was written before the world was ever created. All right? So you'll read 13, 18, please. All, right. all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. All right. So it's talking about, uh, this is talking about the book of life. And this book of life was... Everything was written in it before the world was ever formed. So we see that this is happening before time. All right. Um, our, the, yes. So you're saying that point number two, that God's choice was made before time. The Armenians do not dispute. Right. So their dispute is the basis. Right. And um, we're going to hit that next one. So that's a good clarifying question. Right there. So this is it really it's the basis of election. This is what it all comes down to because everyone agrees that there is such a thing as election. Um, so God's choice was not based on any foreseen merit residing in those whom He chose, nor was it based on any foreseen good works performed by them. All right. So I'm going to have um, Melissa. Can you read Romans ten twenty, please? All right. This is so. This passage, like. It's so cool because it says that, you know, even when we hated God, even when we did nothing to seek Him, God says, uh, I'm the one that showed myself to these people who had no desire to choose me, who had no desire to follow me. And we have another text, uh, Romans 9.16. Uh, Kate, can you read that, please? So then it depends not on human will or insertion, but on God who has mercy. All right. So God's choice of us was not based on what we did, not based on our will, not based on what we wanted, but based on God's mercy. All right, we have, um, Mike, I'm going to go back to you. Can you read uh, 1 Corinthians 27, 29? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of all right. So, this passage does it does it say that God chose those who made the decision to follow Him? No, it says that God chose the weak, God chose the lowly, God chose those who are low and despised. And it was why why did God do that? Because if we if there was anything in us that said, you know, I, I'm the one that like really chose to follow God, I'm the one that chose to be saved. It would give us maybe even just a tiny little bit of um, of maybe pride, maybe um, uh, another way to set yourself apart from other people. But Paul here he says that God chose those who did not seek Him. God chose those who are low. God chose those who are too dumb to make the decision for themselves. Um, why? It's he says right here so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Any questions there? Disagreements? So you're saying that the Armenian position, if it's if God is anticipating our choosing or our faith, that would be important. Yeah. 
That's what I'm saying. And I think this is what Paul is saying as well. And why do I say that? It's because, um, you know, like we... Um, if we could, if there was some way for us to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world, we might say, uh, yeah, it, I was the one that chose to become a Christian. Like, it's like, now I went to San Jose State, so like, I don't really have much pride in going to that school, but like, some other people, they might have went to like Harvard or Cal or to like UCSD, and there's some school of pride there, right? And you can say, <laughs> I chose to go here. Um, and, you know, ultimately it was the choice of the admissions counselor to accept me, but I, I was the one that chose to come to this school, and there's some pride in that. For the believer, there's absolutely nothing that we can stand on, on our own merit. There's nothing we can say. We can't say, yeah, it was, um, uh, like, I, I was the one that ultimately made the choice. And you'll see this in the way that Armenians will do evangelism, is that they'll try to manipulate emotions, they'll try to um, bring you into church, and then they're going to, like, we'll, we'll entertain you, and we'll, um, you know, we'll get you to that point where you can make that decision for Christ, where you can make that decision to become a Christian. But if you, if, if we truly believe what, what um, Paul was writing here, if we really believe that there's nothing that uh, we can stand on, then we'll believe that, you know, whatever God's going to do, He's going to do. We just have to be faithful in how we preach the word. We have to be faithful in how we worship Him. And God is the one that's going to do the work in our hearts and in our church. So this is this is a big point. And this is really, I, I read this passage from Isaiah 40 where it talks about, not election, but it talks about the majesty of God. And the point of election for us, the reason why we need to know that there is such a perfect election, is ultimately so that God would get all the glory. Justin. Um, we talked about like boasting in terms of um, being an Arminian. Um, if you look at boasting from a Calvinist perspective, when did we room to boast when you say that I was elected? Yeah, that's that's a good question, and we're actually going to hit this point later on. Uh, I have um, some common obje- objections to unconditional election on the next page, so we'll talk about that later on. All right, that is a good question. That's a very good question. Oh, Justin, thank you. Can <laughs> <laughs> I ask another question? Yes, sir. I feel like the Armenian position is very intuitive mm-hmm. um, because when I think about how I became a Christian, it seems like I made the choice. Like I, I, I produced the faith. Um, what would you say to that? Like, just in terms of experience, it just seems like I don't. When I when I think back to my salvation, I would think you know, like there was like light shining. Uh-huh. Being dragged upward or something. Yeah. But I, I felt my bit. You know, right, so right. So you're saying that just like on an intuitive level, it, it just feels like you were the one. Yeah. yeah. So um, do you guys get that question? Like it, it feels like we were the one that made the first move and we were the one that that uh, that decided to, to go to that. And I think, I mean, the, the reason why it's a, uh, the reason why uh, the majority of of uh, evangelical churches, at least in America, um, the, the Armenian, is because it, it does really feel intuitive, is that because it does feel like we were the one that made the first move. <coughs> but the Bible talks about how God is the one that draws us to himself. And actually the word, um, there's a word, uh, I'm going to go to my Greek. I forgot how to spell the L, but there's this word, elko. Um, and John uses this word, L. I, 
I, I'm like, I'm so ashamed that I forgot <laughs> what I learned in seminary. <laughs> I forgot to read the L. <laughs> so don't, I'm glad that you guys aren't videotaping this because <laughs> my Greek teacher would be ashamed of, my, of me. Um, but this word alko, Jesus says that the Father draws people to himself. And what does it mean that God draws people to himself? Does it mean that God is saying like, I would like you to come. I would like you to, to join me in the kingdom. And it's up to you to, to make that choice. Um, this, is, this, is the, this is the image that we get when we think of evangelism or when we think of God inviting people. It's like, you know, like, I'm inviting you in. Please come in to my, into my kingdom. Whereas the word alka, when God says, or when Jesus says that God is the one that draws us, um, it, it, it has this concept of God is walking towards us and he's, he's taking our hand and bringing us into his kingdom gently in love. It's not merely, you know, like, you know, like when I, um, if I were, if, if you guys were like, woo girl, you would like maybe send her text messages and you would send her flowers or you might like flirt with her a little bit and say like, please, please come to, uh, please come and come with me on a date. Um, that's one type of drawing. Um, another type of drawing is you just grab her hand and you say, you're going to go on a date with me and it's going to be <laughs> awesome. Um, the second one, it sounds a little bit more harsh, but this is the picture that's presented to us in the Bible is that God is grabbing our hand and I'm actually, I'll present to you a, a picture of this later on or a more, um, an image of this later on of how God is the one that grabs our hand and says, you are joining me in the kingdom and it's because I love you. And it goes back to this. That last week we talked about total depravity. If the doctrine of total dep- depravity is true, the implication is that if we really are dead, if we really cannot choose good for ourselves, there's no way that we would accept God on our own unless God had done something about it. And unconditional election is what God did about it. So... Tulip, all these things are tied together, and um, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. It's all true because total depravity is true. I mean, also, even for me, when I think back to um, when I became a Christian, which was in junior high, but even like in the years leading up to it, there were events that were shaping and preparing me mm-hmm. to, uh, to receive the gospel. And these events were not under my control, right? right. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, and if, if we all think back to how we became Christians, um, I think this might be a good, just a good exercise for us is think back on how you became a Christian. But beyond that, think back about, th- think to all the little things in your life that brought you to that point where you became a Christian. And could you say that God's hand was not in any one point of your life which brought you to that? And I think really that's what what you have to think about is how did I become a Christian? Was it because I was a little bit smarter than someone? Um, that might be the case. But who was it that gave you that intellect, or who was it that brought you to the point where you maybe read the scriptures? Um, and you could you could do that through every little point of your life and say, okay, who exactly was the one that decided that I was going to go to this school, or that I was going to meet this person, or that I was going to end up in this church. Who, who decided that? Was it me, or was it someone else? So that's, um, yeah, so just maybe think about that, and that might lead you to unconditional election. 
So we don't have too much time. Um, and I knew this, so yes, do not panic. Um, election precedes salvation. So some people will say that um, that's you know um, election. Going back to this point, God chose us based on what we on on what He knew that we choose. But here in election, and we have a few passages uh, from Second Timothy. You guys can read that. I know, but my point here is election is not salvation. But it is for for salvation. Those chosen for salvation are not are not saved until they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit and justified by faith in Christ. All right. Um, and then going back to our point to the very beginning of the class, um, I read Isaiah forty for those who were here, and that was about the sovereignty of God. It was about the power of God. And election is ultimately not to distinguish churches from each other. Election is not so that we have a whole bunch of head knowledge and we can beat people in the face with. You know, like, Calvinists, especially, they're, um, they're considered jerks by a lot of people. If you go on, like, internet forums, Calvinists are the ones that are, like, the most obnoxious. Um, and Calvinists are the ones that, like, they have all this head knowledge and they and they go, you know, like, I'm just, like, I, I know that um, I, I there, there's a church close by here, and um, this church sends out a lot of people to school in Southern California, and a lot of these kids that go to Southern, South, Southern California schools go to this one church um, in Southern California, which is um, very Calvinist, and these people graduate, they come back to this church, which is in the Bay Area, and which is happens to be an Armenian church, and these Calvinists, they tell their Armenian friends, um, you know you're wrong, right? Um, and then these arguments are started, and it's just a uh, big, ugly thing. And Calvinists, they get this label that they're the obnoxious jerks. And we don't want to be that. We want to be the most humble people in the world. Because unconditional election is a one that humbles, is a doctrine that humbles us, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. But we don't want to be jerks. We don't want to be the guys that go, you're wrong, and you're stupid, um, and we're right, and we're awesome because we know the truth. So um, so this is this is pointing to our point here. Unconditional election is about the sovereign mercy of God. Um, Ashley, can I have you read again? Um, Exodus thirty three nineteen. This is on your next page. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. All right, thanks. God is the one that is the one that initiates salvation, he's the one that shows his goodness, by showing his mercy. It's about him. Our salvation should ultimately point to the goodness of God. Um, and unconditional election is about God's sovereignty over all things. I'm just going to read through these real quick so we can get to our, our objections. But Job 42, when Job is confronted with the majesty and the power of God, he says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours that can be thwarted meaning that everything that God does, whatever God wants to happen, will happen. Um, Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And we have uh, a couple other texts here. But God is the one that's in control. God, everything that God purposes, happens. Okay, so some objections to unconditional election. And before we hit these, um, do you guys have any like, questions or comments? Yeah. So if everything is already... Preordained, then why does like why is like Exodus thirty three and like why isn't it in past tense like I have shown goodness to all that I wanted to show goodness to I've been gracious to all I wanted to give grace to you know it sounds like like there's still like oh I don't know I'm still deciding you know 
So, like, in like one of the passages we read earlier, it was like talking about like how people would, like be led astray and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it said like, oh, if possible, even the elect. Mm-hmm. But then, isn't that like, why does it even say if possible? Because shouldn't it just be like, it's not possible? Yeah. Well, um, let, let me ask you this: uh, Are 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 we tempted by stuff? Yeah. Uh, okay. And um, do some people do they sometimes um, give in yeah. temptation? Okay. So. There, there's elect, the elect can be tempted and like every one of us is going to be tempted to sin or do certain things like any 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 day right? or actually every day um, but the elect are those who um, who we know there's a there's uh, ultimately they're not going to give in ultimately not to say that we don't give in to sin and this passage is actually talking about like the end days but ultimately we know that we're, we're held by by God and um, the question I think is, a, or the statement is somewhat rhetorical in that the elect will not. I mean, it is like on some like meta, on some like macro level, it is possible, but on a meta level, uh, it's not possible for us to ultimately to get to that point where 
given and and were taken from God. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, Justin, you had a point about pride, right? Okay. Can you ask the question again? Um, <clears throat> I see that there. Well, um, we talk about pride being something that, um, on the Armenian side, is being your own choice, and so therefore you have room to boast about your choice on choosing God. But um, from the Calvinist perspective, being unconditionally elected, or whatever the term would be, wouldn't there be room to boast on that side as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, what do you guys think? Actually, that's a good question. Wouldn't Wouldn't it cause us to <coughs> maybe a little bit proud that we're we were chosen by God? It's like, you know, like those rappers, like, it's like, I didn't choose the thug life, the thug life chose me. <laughs> like, yes, I'm hard and I'm awesome, and there's like, there's some pride in that, right? Um, but the whole point of unconditional election, um, when, when we look at it, uh, and Paul actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 4 7, so I'm going to read that right here. Common objections to unconditional election, number three, some say that in prior, inspires pride. Paul says the exact opposites. For who sees anything? different in you, no one. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So, here's Paul entering this objection. I, I thought that, you know, there's like a little bit of stuff that we pride about, but Paul says, no, you can do it, there's no, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. So if you're elect, it should actually bring us to a point of very healthy fear where, um, where you know that your destiny would have been hell if not for God, if God did not take the initiative. And if you have ever been in a position of danger, like, like I'm talking like life-threatening, like you thought that you would die um, type of danger, and someone saved you from that, do you not feel like the most grateful person in the world? Do you not feel completely humbled, thinking that that could have been me that died? And if you listen to, if you, if you, um, listen to survivors of natural disasters, um, earthquakes or, or like if there was a shooting um, you know in the, the Colorado theater when, when uh, people were shot up if you sat next to a person that was shot in the head would you in any way think that there's anything to be prideful about you'd be you'd be like oh my goodness would you not like fall to the ground and like thank God and say there's nothing there's no reason why it should not have been me that received that bullet and this is what I did in Washington should, on a healthy level, teach us is, yeah, we should be, like, scared out of our minds, but we should also be so thankful and grateful that God did what he did in choosing. So does that kind of touch on this? Alright. And for the sake of time, I'll take one more question or comments. Uh, a question. Yes, Tom. So then, if you read in Romans uh, 10, 9 and 10, mm-hmm. uh, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm-hmm. So what is um, what is that part of, of uh, in, in the bottom where you said election is not salvation, but 
is not salvation, but is for salvation. Those chosen for salvation are not saved until they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, just by by faith in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. So when I witness to somebody and ask them to read this passage and I ask them to confess uh, and then accept Jesus in their heart, what act is that? What how does that fit into the? Oh, so you're talking about like you, there's like certain like um, like steps or. Uh, what we call it uh, in Romans, we have this something called the golden chain of salvation, um, which is you know we're, um, we're God foreknew us, He predestined us, He elected us, He um, justified us, adopted us. Yeah, um, we'll us. So that point is, I think there there is like there is some human um, acting that it's us choosing or it's us making the decision to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Um, but really, but what we have to think about is what caused a person to to say that. Is it the Holy Spirit that caused him to say that, or was it something on his own end that said, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose to um, say that Christ is Lord. Hmm. So, um, in terms of the step, I think that is the ju- that's the that's the Holy Spirit working in you before you reach that point of salvation, and the Holy Spirit is that's the work of God. So, I mean, like, so when we evangelize, it's it's um, it's we're we're cooperating with God. We are doing the work of God with the power of God, and God is the one that ultimately moves hearts. So, okay. Any questions? For the sake of time, I, sorry, go ahead. One last question. Well, it might take a while. Uh, <laughs> ask it, and then maybe we can t- touch upon it okay. next week. Well, I was going to ask, going back to the um, style of evangelism that you were talking about, for Armenians, if, if you say like they're more into like persuasion and emotion and stuff like that, but as Calvinists, we want to just trust that God is the one doing the work, where do we draw the balance between, like, oh, just sitting here and say, oh, God's going to do the work, so I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, that's a really good question. And actually, I should just, like, preface it, like, if anyone's listening to this online, um, we do not hate Armenians. Uh, Armenians, like, there are, I have Armenian friends, and they're faithful. They love Jesus. And um, and I'm not, I'm not going to, like, poo-poo, like, all their evangelistic work. Um, it just, um, there's sometimes like trends towards certain things. But your question was, um, where do we draw the line in terms of like what we do and what um, God does? So I think our work is we 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 preach the gospel, we we believe in the power of the word, and that doesn't mean that we don't like do we don't do things with excellence so that people will be drawn to the church. It doesn't mean that we don't like kind of call our friends and like our say like come to church with me. Like you can be like you can like just like do your part to bring them to a point where they hear the gospel. So. In terms of evangelism, um, what, there's a I have one of the points here, which is, which says that um, event, unconditional election guarantees that our evangelism will work. So it gives us confidence that what we do is not in vain. So that encourages us to say, um, you know, like I'm going to do all I can to bring my friend to to, to church or to to um, share the gospel with them because I know that's not in vain. I know that God is going to work in that. Um, so God's power is in everything that we do. When we call someone up, that's us working with the power of God, saying like, "Hey, come to church," or "Hey, listen to what I have to say about the gospel." Um, and that's that's actually a really good question. I wish we had more time to cover everything. I know I'm, it's going to take a little time. But may I say just something really quick on that? Um, actually, uh, the altar call. Many of you are familiar with, right? Like, come stand up, raise your hand, and accept Jesus. That was actually invented by Armenians, and the reason the reasoning behind it is that. Um, if you create a kind of social pressure, then um, you're going to uh, make it conducive for them to make that step of faith. Um, the reason why we don't do altar calls is because 
it's a bit manipulative, right? You're, you're trying to create some sort of pressure or emotional vulnerability at that moment so that they'll accept Jesus. But if you understand the sovereignty of God in the election, then you're going to be a little bit more calm about the gospel presentation. And you're, gonna, you're not going to try to manipulate people's emotions because you know that God is working behind the scenes. But you're going to present the gospel in a reasoned way. But you're not going to, like, use manipulative means. The, the, the altar call was invented um, 150 years ago during the Second Great Awakening. And so, I mean, these are like new techniques, and there's a theological undergirding behind it. Yeah. And people often use the altar call as their means of assurance. Like, I'm not a Christian because I went up on the altar call. I don't recall reading in Acts Paul's in altar calls. Um, the assurance of salvation in the Bible, the biblical one, is what? It's the physical sign. When you read Acts, it's there. What's, what is it? Not an altar call, right? Baptism. There you go. So I think a lot of times we replace baptism with altar call, which is a shift from corporate church to individual decision. Yeah. So, good questions. I'm like really sorry that we're not able to cover everything. Um, we can talk about this more later, or maybe in the future we can have like like discussion of Calvinism in which each each point gets like three sessions. Because I like I have like seriously so much like I'm like everyone here um, has questions and there's so 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 much to say and I'm really sad that I didn't get to share like some other stuff with you that I had prepared. But um, let's talk about this more and when we're together at lunch or whatever. So. Um, we'll try to answer more questions next week as well. So let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for saving us and choosing us. And even though this presentation of um, this doctrine is so inadequate, I, I trust that you will work through it. And um, yeah, just humble us with this doctrine, God, and um, cause us to love you more and worship you more because of it. So we, uh, we thank you for it. We look forward to worshiping as a family in a, in a few minutes, God. And have your hand over this place as we worship you and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.